Alright. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirabbil alamin. Wassalatu wassalamu ala asyrafil anbiya'i wal mursalin sayyidina wa habibina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. All praise due to Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala and may his peace and blessings be upon our beloved Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, first and foremost, uh, welcome to tonight's uh, podcast, the Friday night podcast where we talk about important issues related to the ummah and Islam in general. And today's topic is an interesting topic because it's probably something that we've heard about but haven't studied really in depth. And that's the topic of maqasid al-sharia. So in recent days, for example, with the uh, pandemic, uh, we've heard, for example, that the one of the maqasid of the sharia, one of the objectives, the higher objectives of the sharia is the preservation of human life which is why it's important for us to take these health measures in order to maintain our health, in order to keep the health society, in order to keep everyone safe. So we've heard this, this term maqasid being used. In about 2015 as well, um, Malaysia, uh, in fact, had released what they called the MSI, which was the Malaysian Sharia Index, where they basically tried to assess the well-being of a country by measuring um, you know, their wellness in terms of how well they were doing in implementing the Sharia. And what they were doing is that they were using um, the principles of Maqasid the Sharia in order to ascertain how well these countries were doing and they were measuring it uh, against that benchmark. And so we have seen in, in recent years um, the extended use of this term Maqasid the Sharia. Now, before we, we actually get into the topic of uh, what it is, its genealogy, how it uh, became what it is, and, and the science that we know today, um, it's important for us to bring everything uh, into context. Now, over the past century, the West has been waging a campaign on Islam and Muslims, and this is not something that we are unfamiliar with, right? The Muslim world has been experiencing this for centuries. And this uh, campaign has manifested itself in military terms where um, Western powers have occupied Muslim countries physically and still do up until this day where they have their military bases in the Muslim world in places like Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Muslim world where the rulers are then an extension of these world powers and are fulfilling their ambitions in the Muslim world um, and, and the region itself. We've also seen as well this campaign have an economic element where the economies of the Muslim world have been subject to the um, hegemony of capitalist states like the United States of America, where they bring in their companies they take the resources of the of the Muslim countries and then use that wealth for their own benefit. So it's another type of colonization. And we've seen this all across the Muslim world. You know, Indonesia, for example, prime example, it's a, it's a country which is rich in natural resources. And yet this has been um, nothing for them. Why? Because they have been exploited economically, right? You have... Western powers coming in with their tools and instruments such as the IMF and the World Bank making these countries indebted to them and in that way subjugating them and um, 
having power over them. And another way in which the Western powers seek to extend their control over the Muslim world and by maintaining their hegemony is through what we call um, the cultural and intellectual aspect. And this aspect is something which we as Muslims are familiar with. right? Ever since the abolition of the Khilafah, we've seen the West wage a campaign in order to ensure that they are, their ideas are prominent in the Muslim world. right? For example, even prior to the abolition of the Khilafah, we saw the idea of nationalism being planted in the hearts of the people. So much so that the people began to become advocates for it. They began to say, oh look, we are Turkish, therefore we have nothing to do with the Arabs. And the Arabs said, no, we are Arabs, we have nothing to do with the Turks, planting the seeds of animosity uh, between them because they knew and they understood that a united Islamic body was something which was, um, which was powerful and had the potential to uh, destroy them. And so they began this, this campaign of trying to insert ideas, right, such as nationalism, democracy, secular liberalism into the Muslim world in order to um, take them away from their Islam in order to have the Muslims fight amongst themselves so that the West could maintain its hegemony over the Muslim world. Now this cultural and intellectual um, attack, if you will, was also coinciding at the same time that the Muslims were in a deep state of intellectual decline. And when I say that the Muslim world was in a deep state of intellectual decline, this, this was occurring even before the abolition of the Khilafah, right? before Adawla Uthmani was considered to be Rajulun Saqim, that it was the sick man of Europe. So this uh, intellectual decline, it meant that Muslims were detached from the Islam, were detached from the Quran and the Sunnah, were detached from the Arabic language, and adopting Western modes of transmission and law in order to um, you know, codify their law. And a, and a very uh, a good example of that is how the Ottomans during the last part of their reign had adopted a, a codification system, a codification of their laws uh, in order to make it um, more organized and more Western-like. And they borrowed this from obviously Europe. And this is Manifest in what is called the Majalatul Ahkam al Adliya, which was a, uh, a, a great work and a great effort, but it stifled in many ways the process of ijtihad. Right? It did not give the independence to the Qudha or the judges to perform ijtihad themselves and come with uh, rulings and solutions. So, alongside this intellectual and cultural attack by the West, you had the Muslims in a deep state of intellectual decline. They weren't able to, to solve uh, the new uh, issues that were confronting them, right? these new technologies that they had been presented with right? by the West. Like there were you know, these, these aircraft that they were seeing, these new technologies of war that they were seeing, and how the West was advancing uh, in many ways. And 
the Muslims were being left left behind, right? So rather than than you know saying to themselves, okay, we need to look within Islam in order to find solutions, in order to progress, as we did intellectually, militarily, materially. When Islam was being implemented in its totality, like you know, we have many examples in his Islamic history, uh, Al-Andalus in Iraq, in the Khilafah, when it was uh, established and in, in full throttle, you saw Islam being a dynamic force which pushed people to, to study and to learn the different sciences, advance in science and technology, and you have famous names coming out, being great contributors to, to science and philosophy. Philosophy and these other different disciplines But rather than, than doing that Many were smitten by the West And they said to themselves The West and Europe are advancing technologically uh, You see, for example um, uh, The advancement of sciences Material progress right? And we have historical accounts of Scholars, for example, from Al-Azhar traveling to Paris and being smitten by what they were seeing, right? And, they, you know, there's the, the famous quote that, you know, in, in, in Paris, I saw Islam, but no Muslims. And in the Muslim world, I see Muslims, but no Islam. You know, you see these quotes being um, penned and coined in, in, in this sort of context. And so... Naturally, quite naturally, when this sort of when when this happens, when an ummah or a nation is in a deep state of intellectual decline, and this is accompanied by a deliberate and intentional uh, attack on Islam itself, there is going to be a, a tendency for some to try to reconcile between the two. And this is where our conversation on the maqasid al-shari'a begins. That we are currently seeing this, this, uh, this term being used. And it's an Islamic term. It has roots in our Islamic history. But it's being used in a context where um, we need to reconcile Islam with modernity. We need to reconcile Islam with secular democracy. We need to reconcile Islam with the nation state and these very Western and secular ideas which are in fact foreign to Islam. So this is where we see the term now being used. Now if we look at the genealogy of the term maqasid al-shari'a or maqasid, the term maqasid, we see that the term maqasid itself or as a discipline as we now know it, right, uh, at present, right, so in the 21st century, over the past two decades, we've seen literature on maqasid al-sharia in Arabic and in the English language uh, on the upward trajectory, right? So many are publishing in this field. Why? Because um, a lot of funding has been pumped into trying to uh, promote this idea. Nations, nation states are you know, formulating think tanks and research centers which are promoting this idea of maqasid al-sharia. And again, it's to it, it's it's used in order to forward their agenda. Right? So as we saw in Malaysia in two, 2015, the Malaysian Sharia Index 
This was used based on the Maqasidi principles or supposedly Maqasidi pr- uh, principles and were therefore used to justify what Malaysia was doing, which is impl- implementing uh, their form of secular democracy and trying to sort of Islamize certain aspects of it. Meanwhile, there are still banks and all these other things that are present in the country. So, um, the although it's been it's been widely written about in the 21st century, right? And we know that there are prominent uh, personality scholars in the West and in the East that have written about this uh, this topic. When we look at the history of it, when we try to find a a, a terminology or a definition of maqasid al-sharia, one would be uh, one would find it difficult and hard to find an actual uh, definition of maqasid al-sharia, right? Which is surprising because when we look at all of the operational tools of ijtihad, the different terminologies that we have, the usuliyin, the scholars, would go at length to try to um, uh, explain a, a certain term. Right, so they would say that a definition had to be jami'un mani'. It had to be all-encompassing and restrict things that don't enter into it. Right, so for example, hukmu shari'i. Right, the uh, Islamic rulings or the the Sharia rulings. What is the definition of that? Right, and they would have the definition of it. What is hukum shari'i? It is khitabu shari' al-muta'alliq bi af'al al-ibad. It is the address of the legislator related to the actions of human beings. So they will be very diligent in providing a definition. But when we look at this term maqasid, we don't find it in the pre-modern era. Like we don't find it being exp- expounded upon and explained in the same manner as these other uh, what we call operational tools of ijtihad like illa, like qiyas, in the same way. Right, and this is an interesting point um, because one of the things that that uh, leads to it leads to a question is why didn't the ulama of the past spend uh, a significant amount of attention on the term maqasid al-sharia? Right, and when you when you think deeply about it, it's because maqasid al-sharia was not an operational factor in in performing ijtihad right you had to understand or the scholars needed to define in unequivocal unequivocal terms what's what's qiyas what is analogy what is ijma they had to define it and they had to define what is it that you uh, what are the tools of qiyas what are the things that uh, qiyas requires right analogy requires it requires and illa, it requires the asl, and they would define these things, and they would try to distinguish between um, a, a certain manat al-hukum and the illa, and they would be very detailed in in regards to these certain things. But with maqasid al-sharia, this conversation isn't there. But in the earliest, the earliest um, mention of the term maqasid al-sharia would probably be uh, by Imam Haramain al-Juwaini. Who was this? Was about the fourth century Hijri or four hundreds Hijri, where Imam Haramain al Juwaini, the great giant uh, of the Shafi'i Madhab, and the great Usuli scholar, 
he wrote in his book Al-Burhan, right? And he has written many books. He he's written he wrote uh, Al-Waraqat, which is a very basic manual in usul al-fiqh which many of us may have have read or had studied but he also wrote a more extensive uh, book in usul al-fiqh which is al-burhan right and in al-burhan as a side note right uh, whilst he's mentioning a a certain fiqhi mas'ala right a certain uh, jurisprudic matter about takbirat uh, al-ihram saying allahu akbar at the beginning of the salah he says that, and this is about uh, the difference of opinion between the Shafi'i and the Ahnaf with regards to Takbirat al-Ihram. He mentions that whoever doesn't or whoever holds such a position is ignorant of the Maqasid al-Sharia, of the higher objectives of the Sharia. So he uses it in a sort of linguistic sense and he doesn't really, uh, he uses it sort of off the cuff. It wasn't really something that he had substantiated. Okay, what is Maqasid al-Sharia? What does it involve? But he just uses it in passing, and that is perhaps the first time that we see this term being used. Conceptually, he comes up with uh, certain terminologies which later scholars then expound upon and and uh, explain. Right. So he he comes up with. For example, the daruriyat, the necessities, the hajiyat, the needs, and the tahsiniyat, which is the embellishments. And so he is the first really to conceptualize this. And remembering, uh, remembering as well that Imam Haramain al-Juwaini, uh, the great scholar, the great Usuli scholar, he comes from a tradition uh, within the Shafi'i madhab, and he's a Khurasani, right? He's He's from uh, Khurasan in the village of Naysambur. And this part or this, uh, this region, it was known in its expertise in cataloging things, in um, separating issues into subjects and compartments. Right? And so when we talk about the compilation of the Shafi'i Madhab, uh, the Khurasaniyin, uh, so this is considered a tariqah within the madhab and you've got the tariqah al-Iraqiyin which is the Iraqi tariqah or the, tari- uh, the Iraqi path they were really good the Khurasanis were really good at cataloging things and categorizing things and th- simplifying things and so Imam Haramain al-Juwaini being the expert that he is in this field and in usul al-fiqh as well this is what he saw and so he started to categorize things in terms of daruriyat uh, hajiyat and tahsiniyat Student Imam Al Ghazali, rahmatullah alayh, right, who dies around uh, 500 after Hijri, after the Hijrah of the Prophet sallam, his student Imam Al Ghazali, he then takes this um, idea to another level, right? And uh, Imam Haramain Al Juwaini, he had uh, great respect for Imam Ghazali, who was his student, and he said uh, concerning him that Imam Ghazali is an ocean. That you can drown in right? Why? Because Imam Ghazali Rahmatullah alayhi, He was uh, not only you know, we, know, we now know him to be The author of Ihya Ulum al-Din you know, uh, The great Ihya Ulum al-Din uh, Which discusses issues of purif- Purifying the heart uh, Intention and these sorts of things But at the same time He was First and foremost an Usuli scholar in the highest esteem. 
right? He he had written the his magnus opus, which was Al Mustasfa, right? Which was the perhaps the greatest book in Usul al Fiqh, which is a reference point from for everyone, even up until this day, right? In fact, the great Hanbali uh, uh, book on Usul al Fiqh, which is Radat al Nadir, is based on uh, Al Mustasfa. So a lot of authors who came after uh, Al-Ghazali They sort of framed their work and based their work uh, On Al-Mustasfa by Imam Ghazali Imam Ghazali he goes on and he talks about the um, The higher objectives But he doesn't term it the Maqasid al-Shari'ah But he calls it the Daruriyat uh, al-Khams Right, the the five uh, things Right, the, the, these five uh, higher objectives Right, and they basically are, you know, have the deen, the preservation of the deen, have the uh, um, nafs, which is the preservation of the self, uh, preservation of lineage, right? Have the nasal, preservation of wealth, um, and the um, preservation of wealth, and the preservation of life, right? So these are. The um, the five things that uh, Imam Ghazali had first penned and first coined, and this would lay the foundations for other scholars who come afterwards to then build upon, right? And later on, we have in the seventh century, you have Imam Mashatibi in his work Al Muwaffaqat, who then expounds upon it even more and has written a book Al Muwaffaqat, which is dedicated purely to this, right? And then there's a, a, a bit of a silence, right, up until the 20th century, where you have the likes of Ibn Ashur, who writes uh, on Maqasid al-Sharia. And then, so this is from the 20th century onwards, right, so after really the abolishment of the Khilafah and onwards, we see the scholars expounding upon it more, trying to provide definitions for it, right. And when you look at the... Um, the earliest scholars of Islam, the classical scholars of Islam, we see that uh, this was not, or Maqasid al-Shari'a was not a separate discipline in and of itself. Right? It wasn't a separate subject matter that you had to that you had to learn and to study, uh, like Usul al-Fiqh. Right? So you have Usul al-Fiqh that's a discipline, and then you also have Maqasid al-Shari'a that's studied as a discipline. And so on and so forth They didn't treat it like that right? At best it would be a chapter Or something they would study within the sciences of Usul al-Fiqh In order to understand and appreciate What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Is intending by the implementation of the sharia right? So for example With uh, You know let's say for example that um, the the hadith that we are, we are all now familiar with, right? That's um, that's talking about a a plague, right? That uh, the Prophet ﷺ said that whenever there's an area that's been afflicted by the plague, then do not enter it, nor if you are in it, do not exit from it, right? From this we can extrapolate that um, that this is a demonstration of. Have the nafs, right? That this is the, the preservation of human life. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ is uh, warning the companions, is uh, telling us that one should adhere to strict quarantine 
um, if they are in a plague infested area, right? So from this, we can extrapolate that there's, there's a higher objective here that's being realized by, by implementing this, which is the preservation of human life. Um, likewise as well, we have the apostasy laws in Islam, right? The apostasy laws, which is that whoever uh, reneges on the, on the deen, whoever decides to apostate, the the had penalty applies to him right which is death this is in order to realize the higher objective of um of preservation of the deen right the preservation of the deen right and we know all of this why because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the quran he says wa ma arsalnaka illa rahmatan lil alamin Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we have not sent you, O Muhammad, except as a mercy for mankind. Right? So the the Prophet wasallam and the Sharia that he had come with, this is in and of itself a mercy for mankind. There are going to be these greater objectives that are going to be realized when one implements the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And f- to further emphasize this point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنُنَزِّلُ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ مَا هُوَ شِفَاءُ وَرَحْمَةٌ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ Right, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and we have sent down the Qur'an, and here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنُنَزِّلُ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ This mean is not to mean from the Qur'an, but it is the mean لِلْبَيَان which is an explanatory mechanism that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using here. Meaning that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that we have sent down this Qur'an that which is a uh, mercy and a cure for the believers. Right? The whole Qur'an, the implementation of the Qur'an in and of itself is a mercy and it's a cure to the believers. These are the, uh, this is the fruit, if you will, of implementing the law and the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, one of the um, one of the mistakes that is often made today is that people are, or some, have done the opposite, which is that they've begun to identify what the maqasid the Sharia are, right? And uh, amongst the scholars, they differed, right? So Imam uh, Al Ghazali he mentioned five. And then you have others like Shawkani who, who added another, right? And Taqyuddin Anabahani who added uh, two more, for example, right? And others that came afterwards, right? But that's not, uh, that's not our issue here. And they've looked at these uh, different objectives and they've tried to extrapolate individual ahkam from these objectives. And this is where it becomes problematic. Because... Now what we see is that people have stated one of the objectives of the Sharia which is agreed upon is Hifz al-Din, is the preservation of the Deen. And then they state that, okay, we have today in the West Hurriyatul Adyan, which is freedom of religion. And this enables us to preserve our religion. Therefore, we should be advocates of it because this is something which is realizing one of the greater objectives of the Sharia. And this is completely wrong. This is something which is dangerous and it has the ability to 
um, to send someone in a in a, in a direction where they will be justifying the unjustifiable. Right? It has the uh, potential of hijacking someone's belief. Right? Because once you start uh, negating individual ahkam, so for example, we have the and this is what some would claim, right? And these are prominent uh, yani, uh, personalities that you have have uh, the deen. These days in the 21st century, the apostasy laws don't apply. Why? Because um, it's not realizing this greater objective of the Sharia anymore. It's turning people off Islam. So therefore, they've um, they've put a stop to it, or they've said that okay, no, we don't need to implement this, right? And so. What, what it essentially means is that people are now making their mind and their hawa the arbiter. They are making their desires and their, not even logical, but their subjective understandings of a specific topic, they're making that the arbiter. They're making that the distinguishing thing that is ruling. It is no longer Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anymore. Right? And this is a, a very, very dangerous concept that can enter into the mind. Right? Because as we said previously, one of the things that the West has been adamant in trying to do is to penetrate the Muslim mind. Why? Because we've been occupied by their militaries. We've been dominated by their economies. Right? We've been subjugated uh, by them But in terms of the Muslim mind This is something which has been impenetrable in the past And now they are be, they're finding creative means By which to penetrate the Muslim mind And when you detach the Muslim away from his core understanding of Islam And you make Islam a mere theoretical uh, issue Or you make it a, a theoretical academic subject area that has no bearing in terms of implementation and what that person is actually doing in his everyday life, you have won the battle. And this is what um, they are seeking to do. They are seeking to detach us away from our Islam so that we have our Islam in terms of, okay, yes, you believe in Allah, you believe in the Messenger, you pray in the Masjid, you pray five times a day. La, that's not a problem. But... It's an Islam which is impotent. It's an Islam which is not to be implemented. right? Rather, they're, they're trying to tell us that you have the tools within Islam. You have this ijtihad. You have the maqasid, the sharia, which you can use in order to try to reconcile Islam uh, with uh, modernity. And another point as well to make is that in certain insta instances, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the maqsad Behind a certain act of worship or a certain ruling, yes, this is true, right? Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, for example, says about the Hajj, uh, where He says, "Liyashhadu manafi alahum," like in order that they witness the benefits of it. Now, does this mean that if a person does not witness the benefits of the Hajj, let's say, for example, he performs the Hajj, yet he doesn't see the benefits of it? Does this mean that this ruling becomes null and void because of the absence of this feeling of there being a benefit? No, this is ludicrous. This has never been said in Islamic history. 
And likewise as well, the uh, attempt to, um, to justify certain things like uh, you know, freedom of religion or be advocates of freedom of, of, of religion at the expense of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually had sent down in terms of uh, you know, the laws for apostasy and to um, abrogate that with something that came from a human being's mind is absolutely rude, uh, ludicrous. It's, it doesn't make any sense. لا عقلا ولا شرعان It doesn't reconcile in the mind nor does it uh, reconcile in terms of the reality of the Sharia itself. And so, um, to end, it is important uh, for us to understand that the Maqasid al-Sharia, they are the fruits of the implementation of the Sharia as a whole. Right? They are the fruits of it. Right? So, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's Sharia is implemented, in its entirety, this is when these higher objectives are realized. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to live at a time when his sharia is dominant, when his sharia is implemented. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.